0: If you would like to join a community of like-minded agency owners and scale your business while doing so, go to eightfigureagency.co forward slash call to explore options on how we can help you scale your agency. What is good, agency owners? In this episode, I am playing to you an interview of me I went on, I believe it's called the Agency Exits podcast with my friend Raj from Hampton, the entrepreneur community. And there's a pretty extensive interview talking about all things on what you need to do to get ready to exit and sell your business. So if that's something you want to do, you're going to want to listen to this interview. Cheers and enjoy.
1: Welcome to Agency Exits. I'm Raj Jha and we talk about everything having to do with growing, scaling, and exiting your agency. I'm joined here with Jordan Ross of Eight Figure Agency. Jordan, thanks for coming on.
0: Ross, well, it's great to see you again and excited to be here.
1: Yeah, great. So Jordan, why don't you give a little bit of a background? Because you you come to this from a, a slightly different angle. We're going to talk about how you work with agencies to overcome some of the hurdles that they have in their scaling and their growth, some of the bottlenecks. But it might be helpful to know some context about your uh, journey, because I think it, it it's kind of a an interesting and different one for some agency owners and you've kind of lived through some of the pain points that you know they have. So it'd be great to hear about that.
0: Yeah. So first and foremost, thanks for having me on and I'm excited to be here. So for everyone that does not know me, Jordan Ross, my background before starting this business was with Amazon Fulfillment. Now I came right out of college, went to Amazon Fulfillment in like in the warehouse managing a team. And I went there with the only intention to become an entrepreneur. I heard a podcast probably back in twenty fourteen that said if you want to become an entrepreneur, go learn on someone else's dime. Like that's the best way. Go intentionally learn through a company and then figure your thing out. And when I was assessing, I heard another podcast that said, pick a skill, right? Pick a skill, go build skills. And then through the skill building, you'll figure out something to do. And when I was, you know, 18 to 21, I didn't have, oh, this is the thing I want to build. So I went into the warehouse. I right out of college, I was managing over a hundred people within 90 days of working at Amazon, which is a crazy concept when you think about it. Someone with no management experience, here we're going to put you into a warehouse with some of the biggest volumes in the world and a of 100 Good luck. During my time at that company, you know, had all the ups and downs. I launched over three different fulfillment centers. I managed over 2,500 employees in total. Got promoted a few times. When I was 24, I was managing a team that had over 800 people beneath me in my org chart, eight-figure business unit. By the time I got to that third business, which was in Ally at this point, I had known how to run a business. Amazon teaches you everything that it comes to running a business. They give you so much autonomy and ownership to really succeed or fail, you know? And on the side of that job, I started consulting. I had wanted to become an entrepreneur, as you guys have known this already. And now just like, I want to help people. I love helping people. I feel like I have so much skills from Amazon. I'm going to go help a business owner that probably doesn't know all these things. And I was so shocked to find out that The standard that Amazon holds, it's not even the same league that the world of SMBs lives in. It it, it truly is not even in the same ballpark or even the same arena as what the education around operations, running a business, data, management, sourcing, hiring, onboarding, training, culture, performance, performance, everything that comes with running a business, there is such a lack of education around this stuff. So to my benefit, I start consulting companies on the side and no one knows anything for my standards, right? And first client ever, he's a teenager. We help him build a million dollar business within like 18 months. Second client ever, 21, 22, goes around 10K to 3 million in 20 months. And it just kept success after success after success. And I fell into the agency space by serendipity. My first client was an agency owner. My second client was an agency owner. And within six months, I'd consulted over 30 different industries. And I looked back and my best clients ever that were having the craziest success were agency owners. That's because agency owners are typically great or good at the marketing and sales side, and everything else is not their strong suit, which it was mine. And to give you the quick rundown of ADAF, you know, we've worked with over 800 agencies now. We have over 120 active clients. Our largest clients are doing high eight or nine figures in annual revenue, but we got clients that come in at the six-figure revenue, like mid six, low six-figure. and. What I've learned is that operations are the same at six figures that they are at nine figures. It's just at different scales, but the fundamentals are the same, which is why our systems work at all different shapes and sizes. So that's the quick high level. We bring operations management and strategy consulting to our clients, helping them build the right systems and infrastructure and processes to grow beyond their current level. Because in business, there's four constraints that any business faces. Leads, that's getting people either to like, get into your door. Sales, converting those leads into actual business capacity and operations, being able to fulfill and then LTV lifetime value. How much does that client pay you over the lifetime of your engagement with them? That is it. And what I realized is, you know, when you solve the latter two, which no one really talks about, you could alleviate and really raise the ceiling of achievement in that business. And you could two X, five X, 10 X. And that's what we do. That's the high level overview of me and AF. Yeah,
1: that's, that's super helpful. So I, I think let's maybe delve into the mindset of some of these agency owners because they come to it very much as their skill set is in demand generation one way or another. Whether it be through direct response, whether it be through brand, they know the art of doing that because they're doing it for clients. And that is necessary to get your first few clients. What's the point at which these agency owners, you believe, should start thinking in terms of systems and processes? Because there's the the accidental agency owner who starts and they start freelancing and then they get a couple of part-time people and then starts to become overwhelming. And then there are those who start out very intentionally. No, I am building a management team from the get-go. Where in that journey do you think that people should start taking this more seriously? Because I typically will talk, You know, this is agency exits, right? So we're typically talking to someone who's figured it out themselves to get to, let's say, high six figures, low seven figures and like, okay, what's the next step? But should they be thinking about it even earlier? And what should they be thinking about in what order?
0: 100%, they should be thinking about it earlier because even if you're just a freelancer and you have some VAs, associates, and contractors that work with you, even if it's just VAs that work with you, everything is all about the fundamentals, just like in great sports. If you study the best sports teams are the ones who execute the fundamentals better than anyone else. So when I look at any business, yes, the time to think is now, about this because it's going to make your life easier. And I'll give you a quick highlight of this. When I started out, I could, I have a picture in my mind of being in my first six months of me quitting Amazon and me just being a freelance consultant. I had a team of admins that reported to me and I didn't at first use the Amazonian principles to manage them because I was like, I'm a really good manager. I don't need that. And what I realized is it just lowered my sense of achievement. It made me do more work than I had to. And when I start to use some of the processes, like defining, hey, this is the standard operating procedure of how you do this one task. Hey, we're going to create some standard work for you that you need to do every week and every day. Hey, we're going to create some end of day reporting so I know if you do this thing. Hey, we're going to do some time tracking. Right, all these things are so fundamental. But when I implemented them, it gave me more time and mental space to actually focus on growing. So I would say yes, the time to think is is right now. And to highlight this, I'll give you a quick anecdote of myself, when I quit Amazon, I spent about six months figuring out product market fit. And then within the 18 months, once I identified product market fit, I went from zero to a million in annual recurring revenue. That's zero of not my consulting revenue, but me hiring a team. And that team was generating over a million in annual revenue, not my clients. From the point that I hit a million in annual revenue, it took me 90 days, three months to go from 1 million in annual recurring revenue to 2 million. And that's because I had the right infrastructure and process to actually scale. So the time is now and the second part of that question is what, what should you start to think about? So there's some basic principles and basic concepts. So the first thing I always talk about is your workflow. In a warehouse, your workflow or your process workflow, wireframe is under commonly used term, is the second that something comes into your warehouse all the way to when it gets delivered to the customer, what are all those steps? Now you could retrofit that to a service-based business or an econ business. The second a customer makes a purchase of your product or service, what is every single step up until the point of delivery? And in an agency specifically, there's the onboarding process, and there's what I call the retention or the loop process. You onboard a client over a period of 30 to 90 days, and then you continually engage with them delivering services and trying to maintain their business every quarter, every month, just cyclically. If you map out every single step between the onboarding and the, the loop process, if you map out who the owner is, don't map out who the employee is, map out the owner of the role. So is it a customer success associate, the account manager, the project manager, the strategist, the media buyer, the copyright, the graphic designer? Because people change roles don't. And then there's so much more like what type of interaction is it definition of done software implication sop training sops help people what to do trainings teach people how to think when you start with this this sets your operational foundation now you could start to do everything else a lot easier you could define very clear expectations harvard did a study that clear expectations improve performance 20 to 33 percent. you could take those expectations then turn into what i call a standard work checklist that checklist i already referred to it is that list of things your employees do every single day, week, month, and quarter. You can break this down into three types of checklists. Checklist number one, these are things I just do internally every single day, week, and month. And it could literally be a checklist. Here are all the actions in column A. And then it's just a checkbox, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Did I do it? Yes or no. You could put this in a software. You could do client-specific actions, right? So if you're a media buyer, I need to check budget spend on a daily basis, maybe, to make sure that we're not overspending right? So you have the client name, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, check, check, check. And then you could have data, right? So let's stick in the analogy of media buying. If I'm running ads for a client, I want to make sure that we're getting a cost per click, cost per lead, cost required customer. You could have what we call the Amazon benchmarks. This is where I want to be. This is where I am. And then every day you get that checklist filled out, and then it goes into an end of day report, that report as gives you as a manager, executive, or founder visibility without having to talk to people. Did my stuff get done today? This is the core four or five things that sets your operational foundation that frees you up to focus on higher leverage activities. My definition of leverage, it's the output, the result of what you get with the input, your time. If you have more leverage, you could get more done with less
1: time. So that's the game. That's the name of the game. So, you know, you're speaking my language, but I also have to say that this is not everyone's language because- Most people don't have this language. Most people don't have this language, but even if they do, I think there's some tension in amongst agency owners where this feels stifling in a way, right? This too much, it feels heavy. What you've just said to me, like, you know, I'm eating it up because it's kind of what I did with my agency and that's, you know, how I built the thing. But for a lot of folks who don't have it right now, they're thinking, oh man, like he's just mentioned that I've got a checklist every single day. All my people have a checklist every day. Now there's reports rolling out to me. It feels really heavy. Now the reality, once you're on the other side of that might be different, but how do you talk someone through convincing them or compelling them, better word, that this is actually not going to stifle their freedom and their creativity?
0: Yeah, it actually frees up more space. Because here's why. There's two types of managers. There's what I call a tugboat manager and a lighthouse manager. A tugboat, if you are giving the literal analogy of a tugboat, a tugboat is a little boat that goes out to a bigger boat, and the bigger boat can't make it to shore because, you know, like the shoreline's too shallow or whatnot. So the tugboat brings people in one by one. That's what most managers of all businesses do. I'm going to check in on every single employee, make sure things get done, or just, just pray. I spoke to someone yesterday that this guy's plateaued at 60K per month, and he he has no visibility, no system. He just hopes that things get done. And he said, I get to 70K and then my business inevitably shrinks to 50K. And the reason is there's no visibility. The processes break once they get between 60 and 70. Clients churn, and he shrinks back down to 50K. We're like, his team could manage that. So if you're a tugboat manager and you talk about creativity and freedom, that means you're spending mental energy and time checking in on every person. I barely talk to my team during workday. Like I really don't do much. Now, the other side is the lighthouse manager. A lighthouse stands in one place, just goes around and around, and people that are out to sea see the light, and they're naturally gravitated, and that's the purpose of an end-of-day report. I don't have to talk to anyone to make sure things got done, to know where people are in process of onboarding retention issues. I see it all, so I actually have way more mental capacity to think about growth, to think about sales, to think about creativity. Like I make a lot of content. If I don't have the space mentally to think about content, my content production decreases and my content effectiveness decreases too. And for me in my business, about half of our leads and about 75% of our net new business comes from my branded content. So it will actually empower
1: you to have more space and freedom than stifle you. I see that with the businesses that I run. Then the other portion of that is culture right? Because a lot of culture is certainly through my work experience and then early in the agency before I kind of made it run more on rails was that so much happened in the kind of the chance encounters because everything was random. So as we now are entering a phase where a lot of agencies are virtual, increasingly so, how do you marry that with keeping culture and the whole people ops side of things so that people feel like it's a healthy work environment? Not everyone's an introvert like me. You can sit here and do things by checklists and by loop. Right. So there are a lot of people who need something more than that. So, how do you think about advising agency owners on the people and culture aspect of that?
0: Yeah. So, I just think for clarity, everyone has a different definition of culture, which is such an interesting thing. It's this thing that everyone knows they need, but like everyone has a different definition. So, my definition of culture culture is what your people say and do when you're not around, it's the thoughts, motions, actions collectively of your business. So a good visual for that is what your employees say when they're at the dinner table with their families about you behind your back, right? It's what they do with your clients when you're not looking, that's culture. So my belief is that the best type of culture is culture of accountability and visibility. That's number one. That's like the foundation of culture. So in sports, in any sport, and any professional sport, if someone, let's just use basketball, if someone shoots an air ball and whether you're watching at home or you're watching live at the game, everyone sees it. But in a lot of agencies, people are shooting airballs every day and no one sees it. We have a culture of medi- less than mediocrity. We have a culture of low performance. Now, culture comes by standards set by founders. So when you pair visibility, so the end of day report, the end of day checklist with standards, hey, this is how we do things. And we define the way we do things through that process workflow. Now, here's the way we do things. Every day we're going to have visibility behind it. You now have a foundation of a culture of a higher likelihood of performance. The next layer on top of that's management. My definition of management and the purpose for management for me, it's to retain your talent and develop your talent. Part of retention is to make sure people feel seen, heard, and valued. They have a career path where they could visibly see, oh, I could go from A, B, and C. You know your team members' current compensation, and you know what they want to make in one year and five years. You know their personal goals, what they want, where they want to be in their personal lives one year and five years from today. So, all these things, if you have these things and then you have mechanisms to make sure you stay in front of your people so they feel like they're part of a team and they feel valued, such as daily audits, daily touch points, weekly touch points, weekly audits, management, one on ones, you put that layer on top of visibility. Visibility just creates accountability, but I still feel like I'm valued here. I'm not just cogging a machine like these people genuinely care about me. So, one of the things I say bad culture starts with operations, that operations create firefighting. Firefighting creates managers who need to go put out fires and like run around with their head chopped off. Managers who don't have the time to take care of their people leads to people that are in discontent and upset, which is bad culture, bad output. Good operations, good, strong core of your business leads to managers that have the time to check in and take care of their people. When they have the time to check in and take care of their people, their people feel happy, they perform at a higher level, that leads to good output. That is good culture. So that's how I think about culture and that's how we educate and talk about it too.
1: It's interesting that one of the things I've observed is that when you use transparency as a tool and you use accountability as a tool, the culture can start to fix itself because you will naturally probably shed some people if they are not of the right culture, if they are hiding things, if they are free riding, and all of a sudden they'll start resisting when you're putting in place these visibility metrics about what is the performance, are things getting done, if you're doing surveys of your clients to say, how well are we performing? How is our communication? The kinds of people who would hide from that kind of thing, they know they're going to get exposed and they churn out and you actually end up with a stronger organization because I'm not always a fan of using the A player, you know, notion of everything, but the A players, the ones who want to do a great job and want to be with others who are doing a great job are more likely to stay and redouble their efforts 100%. So I played competitive basketball and
0: AAU and whatnot growing up. And I just think about, for me, I'm a competitor. I love to play the any game, right? And I just want to play with the best people. That's why I went to Amazon. I didn't go to... I'm not going to throw shade of any other business, but like I didn't go to Target because Target wasn't the best in the world at this thing. Now, they're one of the best in the world, but I wanted to go to Amazon. They are the best. That's who I am. So I like to say great, great talent wants to work for great companies. You have to do these things if you want to hire... If you want to get the freedom, the space, the time to work on the higher leverage activities or the things you love, you still need a great company because you're either going to attract the right talent or when you happen to source the right talent, you'll keep them. But if you don't have these things, they will leave because good talent knows their worth and they're going to go work for a place that doesn't drive them crazy. So it, yeah, all this stuff, like I said, fundamentals, it just goes back to basics. It's not easy stuff. When you compound it, it's a lot of stuff. But when you have right systems and processes and checks and balances, it makes things easier and mitigates issues because there will always be issues. At Amazon, I was firefighting a lot because at high volume, things break and that's okay. But there's processes to fix things that break.
1: Let me uh, talk to you about one theme that I've talked with a lot of agency owners about. So on this show, we've had agency owners six figure exits to nine figure exits. And They've all said one thing, well, all except those who went hard into technology said they had one major bottleneck, which is the need to hire before you have the revenue. And then there's always, you're always running too lean or too fat. So your margins go up and down as you need to staff up in advance. And whenever you're building systems and processes, it will inherently, if you're doing it well, allow for greater efficiency, but during that period of time, while you're installing it, it can be kind of a mess because you're building all of that stuff. People are executing the old way and the new way. How do people in your mind get through that feast or famine stair step of growth?
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you just add the vulnerability. I've overhired too. I know I know all the appropriate procedures, but I've also you know been susceptible to being human and having a little hubris. Oh, this is our growth trajectory. I'm gonna hire in advance because this is where we're growing towards. And oh crap, I now have an IT department where I'm way overstaffed. right? That's happened because that's just, sometimes you think things are gonna happen and the marketplace tells you otherwise. Now, when it comes to your fulfillment, one of the best ways to avoid that feast or famine, like hurting your margins by making a full-time hire before you're ready is through a contracted part-time model. This is something I'm very passionate about for our clients. Now, in my business, with all my consultants, at all times, I have a job post up on LinkedIn, literally all the time. Now, in this role, I'm sourcing my primary role, which is consulting a consultant, but for you in your business, that might be, you need a copywriter, you need graphic designers, you need media buyers, you need web developers, like you need CRO analysts, like there could be a hundred different roles. My number one premise is source before there's need, put people through your process, them through a good process where you verify they can actually do the job. So put them through some form of technical assessment. By the time they get to interviews, if you put them through one or two technical assessments, and you might have to be paying people to actually do these technical assessments because they might take one, two, or three hours. By the time they get to the interview, they're qualified on a technical level. They can do this job. Now it's cultural fit. Now, let's just say you're at a place where growth is coming, but I don't need this full-time hire. I don't want to hire too soon because that's going to really hurt my margins. And if we lose a client. Now I'm in a stressful position. Don't do that. What we say is ask your prospects, the prospective talent to work for you part-time, like on a micro level. Hey, what I understand is that you're currently in a full-time job and you're not happy there. But one of the things that we want to make sure is that you don't make that mistake again. And neither do we. Would you be open to working with us on one, two, or three accounts to make sure that you're a fit for us and we're a fit for you? 95 to 99% of people are very open to this concept because number one, the scariest thing as an individual is for people that have been to multiple companies, they get burned a bunch of times. So there becomes this anxiety that builds up as an employee. I'm going to make the leap into this agency. I think it's going to be good, but I've worked for two agencies and oh boy, those have been stressful. So it mitigates that fear for them and that risk. So if shit hits the fan, they're not going through the cycle again. And then for you, if let's just say the average account pays you 2500 to 5k a month if you could get them to work on two or three accounts by the time you're ready to hire them full time you bring on that fourth or fifth or sixth account now they're already trained you know for a fact they're a fit and by the time you hire them full time you're hiring them because you have that next client that is basically you're not running a loss anymore you're running almost a net positive so it actually helps balance out that feast or famine cycle that you know our margins are great then they're bad then they're great it it helps balance it out a little bit to make the bell curve a, in, within a smaller delta one of the hardest things as an agency owner is building a team that can actually execute without needing you and deliver results that you can trust to learn things fast and deliver every single time the reality though Most of us can't afford top-tier talent, and even those of us who can afford top-tier talent doesn't know how to get the best talent to work for us. That's why I built the eight-figure funnel. I've been able to hire over six eight figure COOs and convince them to come work for me to help my clients grow. Guys that have already been there and done that, that have run 20, 30, 50, $80 million a year companies working for someone who's not even 30 years old. I've put this all into a simple ebook so you can do exactly the same thing. If you want access to this ebook, go to 8 figureagencyco forward slash value and grab one of my best pieces of free content that I've ever released today. Hey there, this is Jordan Ross, your host of How to Scale an Agency and thank you so much for listening. If this podcast has given you any value, if you listen to it weekly or you're just tuning in on a blue moon, please like and subscribe and give us a good review. Reviews are the easiest way that we can help other agency owners expand their information, their knowledge and grow their companies, which is why we do this. We do this to help each and every one of you make business growth simpler. So. Like I've said, if you've received value, we do not promote our podcasts any other way except through word of mouth. We don't have sponsors because we want to keep this as high level for you as possible. If you could return just a little bit of a thank you back to us, we would so greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get back to the show.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I think it's the, what's the phrase I heard? I won't, I won't work with you till I've worked with you. I think that was the... Uh... Who said that? Was it Seth Godin? I won't work with you to like. Great work- line. I've never heard it. Yeah. I, I have to find the correct attributes. I, I think it's Seth Godin, but I think that that is absolutely the uh, the premise there. I mean, it's, it is, it is. You know, I like that for hiring executives, especially. It's uh, okay. We'll, we're going to hire you because when I was hiring a COO for my agency, it was like, I'm going to hire this person on a contract basis. It's going to be a really fat contract because they're not getting equity at that point. They're essentially working at, Fifty percent time, so they you have to kind of goose them up for that. So I'm paying a significant premium, but on the other hand, a mistake on hiring an executive can be massive versus that, the the amount of extra that you'll pay. Because yeah, you I know, mean I made a really really big mistake hiring my first COO, which nearly tanked the agency. So on the second time around, I was a little more gun shy, and just that whole try before you buy is definitely something to do. Yeah. So tell me, what are you seeing in terms of themes as people think about prepping the agency for exit? There's this period where you start out and you've got no systems and processes, or you've got something for systems and processes. And then you go through the process of defining systems and processes, putting place to people and the culture aspects of it. Uh, How do you see the folks that you work with and their thoughts about building enterprise value? Because I think that's something that is not... Talked about in agencies, they're really the, the mentality of most agency owners is it's a cash flow entity, and they might have some general vague notion that this thing could be sold, and they see some big stories about oh WPP bought this, and they see a big number, but they have like no idea about what goes into that. So maybe from your perspective, working with so many agencies, you can add your flavor to that discussion.
0: Yeah, and obviously, you know, you're the enterprise value guy, right? By building different things and. But for the average agency who doesn't have IP or technology that they could leverage to increase their enterprise value, let's just define some marketplace facts as of today. The average agency sells at a two to five X EBITDA multiplier. That number typically goes up when your EBITDA is north of 1 million annually. There's a lot of factors in there. And I'll tell you like, what are some themes and trends? These are not for my clients. Most people are lack the education around what their business is worth because it's their baby, right? So. Most agency owners I find actually overvalue their business because of the emotional, you know, the emotional investment, but buyers don't care. So if you want to have a 5x multiplier, and let's just say 5x, if you're doing a million annually, that means you're gonna get a cash out exit of five million. Most people want that cash up front, which most buyers don't want to give up front. So if you want to stack as many chips in your favor, the things you have to think about is this business needs to be turnkey. So turnkey comes from the real estate market. And in a turnkey property, you acquire the property, you list it on Zillow or Airbnb or wherever you list it. And now people are renting it and it makes you money tomorrow. That's what you need your business to be. So if you want the highest valuation, you have... A very diversified source of leads. So you're getting leads from ads, from cold call, from cold outbound. If it's from content, it's not content relying on the founder, it's content relying maybe on a CEO or a COO or an employee that's, or a series of employees. A sales team that's self-managed by, there is a defined sales manager, an operations team, you have a process to grow without needing you and fulfillment and LTV are clearly defined. So having your books in order, understanding your data right? There's like really 13 major points that are super important to define, but you need this business to operate value. So my biggest thing, I call it stress testing. Go leave your business for a full month minimum. And your internal team will write down everything that goes wrong, literally everything that goes wrong. Okay. Now do that. Come back. You work for a period of six to nine to 12 months to fix all those things while still tracking and measuring data, making sure you're tracking cash flow month over month. And also, quick caveat, make sure your business is a cash flow-based business, not an invoice-based business. So have cards on file. Like That could hurt your points, percentage points. And then do it again. Leave for another month. Leave for two months and do this over again. Because if you could show a buyer, hey, over the course of the last 36 months, I have intermittently left this company. And now I'm, I've left it for, for 90 days now. And this is what cash over month over month growth looks like. The bigger those margins are when you do that, the higher your valuation. Because it's a turnkey business, right? An acquirer wants something that's stable where they could still go in and what if it's a strategic acquisition, maybe they're doing it to get access to your buyers, to get access to cash flow. It could be a series of reasons. But the number one thing is you want your business to be turnkey. So you gotta be leaving. And the theme is no one thinks about that, Raj. No one is actually doing that or trying that. I've actually met one guy who does that. It's so sad. This one guy who did it, his margins were just atrocious. He 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 didn't have a hold. So you need you need the full symphony of all these factors. Right.
1: That's funny because it's a parallel development. So I used a process called management by vacation. You know, I was doing everything. So I went away for a week, then away for two weeks, then a month, then two months, then a quarter. And so I, I kept on just upping it and it's like, okay, what's going to break first and trying to anticipate. So I went through the same, the same process myself. I think the other reframe that I think is helpful is to think about what the buyer is buying, right? Because you mentioned that the seller is selling their baby but a buyer is buying future cash flows for any business that's all they're buying because unless you can show them that 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 cash flow is going to exist and it's not handicapped by the risk of any one element in the business you're just going to get a lower multiple so that's reflective of the investment and the return on the investment and the risk on the investment for the buyer so just reframing it like that and just thinking the buyer's shoes it's like would i buy this business and for most agency owners if i asked would you buy your business today most of them are like, yeah, I'm not so sure.
0: Yeah. I love that as a reframe and it's so, so simple, but there's something called Solomon's paradox that it's a principle I'm talking about a lot lately that states we as individuals cannot see our problems as clearly and solve our problems as clearly as someone else can, because we're too inundated. So in this example, Raj, like Bring someone up from the outside in to look at your business. This is something we do for companies. We will say, hey, here are all the issues you need to solve. Bringing brokers in to give you a marketplace valuation. And I would say bring honest brokers in because it's really common in the brokerage space. I know a broker. He's amazing. I only referred this one broker to my clients. The average broker is going to beef up what they say you can sell to. And like some of these companies, I'm not going to say names, but the overall majority, are not going to tell you the true valuation because once they have your business, it's like, oh, I said it was going to be a million, but like, I didn't know about these factors. So it's really like a half a million. But now that you've gone through that full process and you're in bed with them, it's like, it's easier to stay with them. So find a trustworthy broker, talk to their ex clients. Hey, what was the valuation before? What was your experience like? And bring people in to tell you, cause you're probably not going to see all the things, even if you are doing the vacation, the time off and things break and you sell them.
1: Yeah. And I think that the other thing is to talk with People have actually sold agencies, and they're they're out of their earnout period because I, there's a lot of this echo chamber in the agency space where people are talking to each other. Nobody's ever actually sold a business, and they're not willing to really share what's in their business. But finding people who have already been through it, and they're out, and they're not doing an agency now, they got nothing to lose. It's amazing how much more they're willing to share at that point. So find those people. You know whether it's like hitting up people who you hear on this podcast or just, you know, you can just search on LinkedIn and find people who have sold agencies. And you'll find that they're willing to share. You're going to learn so much more about what they went through on the painful last year before the sale that you would never have expected.
0: Yeah, and I'll actually, you you saying that actually triggered a a quick thought for me that's really important if you are considering selling. I know, unfortunately, not people that have worked with Adaf. But I have friends and colleagues and people in my network that have sold, and they lose out on a significant portion of their earnout. Now, this is common. I was talking to a client of mine. He sold. He got eight million in cash up front and has another. He's got big earnout, and he's saying, "I'm probably not going to see X percent of that earnout." But he consciously knows it because he sold multiple businesses. So there is an acceptable deviation, right, on an earnout that you might not earn. But there are a lot of people that they sell for a million or for 2 million it's not like on the market significant numbers but that million means the world to them you don't want to sell to a first time buyer that's number one i would say never ever sell to a first time buyer because the likelihood that they are going to screw the pooch with your company
1: is it's very high <laughs> yeah about 100% right <laughs> a start a starter business eh.
0: i'll give you two quick examples of that i have a friend he's a really good friend he sold his business to a first time buyer and they had an earnout that was based on profit. This guy got acquired as, and it had a two-year earnout period. And the owner decided to change the offer against the seller's advice. It completely ruined profit, and you know the owner said, "Hey, I'm not paying you half of, a half a million dollars, 500k, because you screwed up. This is your fault." And he's like, "This wasn't my fault. I told you not to do it." And then we had another, I had another friend who had a million dollar earnout period over two years who he, I mean, he didn't get like 75% of that because the person who acquired it had never acquired a business. And this friend who sold his business was a invoice based business, right? But he had never had, I think he had 99% collections on time because they had, they're an advertising agency when they would be running ads for clients. If they had a net seven terms, if the invoice was not paid in seven days. They turned off the ads, which meant for their clients, their revenue literally turns off. The acquirer changed that system, turned it to net. It was either net 30 or net 60, and they weren't strict with it. So now they were taking out loans and they were running losses. And the thing is, this is do not sell to someone who has never acquired a business. Sell to someone with an exceptional track record who has a portfolio that every company they buy, they grow it. That's who you want to sell to, because that's going to actually have a higher likelihood that you get your earn out
1: less so for the agency world but you know i i spent 20 something years here in silicon valley and seeing all of the m a that that i did and the others did here the operating assumption i used to tell founders all the time is assume you'll get none of the earn out would you be happy if you got zero earn out because that could happen and the headline number that you're saying oh it's a 10 million dollar deal 15 million dollar deal that sounds great and all, but when really all that happens is you're getting five and the rest is on the back end, and of that five, half of it goes away for taxes, then you're like, okay, wait a minute. Looks like I'm on the merry-go-round one more time. So if you're not happy with that number, consider whether or not it makes sense.
0: Yeah. And people are facetious. Like if you have an earn that's based on profit, which happens, you know, owners will intentionally drain that profit. They'll go invest in, like, there's so many things that if you don't know what you're doing, you could really get taken advantage of. So, fortunately, Raj, who's been in the legal space, could help you out, right? Could point you to the right people.
1: Yeah, it's one of those things. And also, I suppose it's, you know, I'm a former attorney, not you know, hung up those spurs, but some folks don't get advice on it. And there's a lot of subtlety in these earnouts and how they're phrased. So, you might think because on the term sheet, it said this in plain English, but the actual details can be very, very different. What's a material adverse change? What, like, what are the things that will actually trigger or not trigger? Because when it comes down to it, the incentive for them not to pay it could be a seven-figure incentive or even a high six-figure incentive. Most people would think, well, I'll pay this lawyer even you know, 800 bucks an hour to figure out if there's a way out of this. That's just good math on their side. So the incentives get so big That you really need to buy the insurance policy of a really good M and A attorney at the beginning. It's going to sound like a really painful bill, and no, I don't do this work, so don't call me about it. But like, find somebody who's really, really good at that, because you're going to save yourself a lot, and you're going to hate writing that big five-figure check to the lawyer, but in the end, it will save you so much money.
0: And one of those guys actually have my. We recently did a live event. I one of the guys who sponsored is an M and A attorney. He's got a great reputation. So if you need one, I'll. I'll connect you to my guy. He's He's a mensch and he's a great guy. That's good work.
1: I think there's one more thing I wanna talk about today, which is where the industry is headed. You know, I sold my agency about over three years ago now. And the world is how many folks, if you've been running an agency for five or 10 years or what have you, it didn't change much. Things are changing really fast now. I think both with the dematerialization of everything Remote work is kind of the norm for a lot of agencies. AI has changed the landscape drastically in the last few months, Uh, so much so that, you know, with what I do on the more the technology kind of side, we're looking at platforms and building platforms that can essentially take entire jobs and remove them from an agency. So you come to this with an interesting perspective because it's all about operational discipline and consistency. So. When you do that, you get the opportunity to also look very critically about what to automate and not automate. I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are, at least from your community on what people are doing to prepare for the two years from now and what your view is on, on how AI is changing things because you know, we've seen it change very fast, but I don't think the industry knows how the train is headed straight for them.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because the average owner Majority of people don't have the actual time to even pay attention to where the market's going, right? And that's actually a scary. When I hear that, if that's you, that should be a scary thing, because AI is going to change every single thing in the agency world around marketing or development or fulfillment. Everything will be changed. Everything. So some simple tips, like for me and my business, one of the things we're we're doing is we're just going to have an an AI expert, but we're building a team of people for our clients and for ourselves that are going to be able to come in and say, Hey, if you want to bring in this person for like a half hour or one hour, just to look at your segment of the market and do research for you and present that to you and say, here's what you can do in your business in the next six, 12, 24 months. I would say you probably want to have something in your, in your budget. And I call it the R and D budget research and development. If you do not have the physical time to get educated, pay someone to educate you and pay someone to look at your business and look at the marketplace and tell you what's happening. Because I find the trend, Raj, is that most people just don't have that time. So pay someone who is, is exclusively in the AI field because it's crazy. Machine learning and software, the development of software, it's there's going to be a significant increase in net profit for the owners and a significant amount of jobs that are eradicated and that talent's moving elsewhere. But my biggest encouragement based on what i see trend most people are just not free enough to explore that so set aside budget on an annual basis or even like a semi-annual basis to have someone just come in and poke around and say hey here are three things that we could build out for you that's going to save you more time or and these roles these are things that could be repeated through ai or software right i would really encourage you to do something along those lines because that could be your saving grace to keep you in business for the long term because if you look in the last 20 years in traditional media, so many traditional media businesses were run out of business by the digital marketing agencies because they weren't ready for it. And we, there's another revolution that we're on the cusp of. It's the AI. It's the AI revolution. So it yeah, just learn from the previous owners' mistakes are now out of business. And I just love consultants. I'm such a big advocate for hiring consultants. Obviously, we we I run a consultancy, but I always bring in consultants because I have a very limited perspective and. I like to bring in experts that have very specific perspectives that broaden my perspective overall.
1: Yeah. And I, th- I think that it's both a challenge and an opportunity in the sense that if you don't have time for it, it's just going to hit you and you won't even know it. But if you pay attention now, there's also this limited window of opportunity where if you are at the cusp of it, you can increase your margins substantially. So if you're looking at an exit before this becomes more pervasive, you can actually stand out from the market. So that's the opportunity aspect of it but if you don't pay attention to it what's going to happen all of a sudden is what a lot of more cutting edge companies are doing so for instance for the companies that i own we're not even hiring a lot of content people at this point we've just replaced it entirely with a all the low level content generation is replaced entirely with ai and then we just have one strategist super high level person who just finesses it that is probably tens of thousands of dollars which would have gone to an external agency which now i'm keeping internal now, that's not yet common, but two years from now, you better believe that's going to be pretty common.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways you could use it, and a lot of different functionalities, and it's worth the investment to spring someone in to tell you, educate you. Right.
1: Excellent. So, Jordan, as we kind of close out a little bit, what are some things that uh, that I haven't asked you that you think that someone listening to agency exits probably should hear about what they need to be thinking about? and operations-wise or people and culture-wise that you guys specialize in that uh, is a message that you think they need to hear?
0: Yeah, I would say the core message is when it comes to growing your business, right? Because if you want to eventually sell, we already discussed like, the process of removing yourself, but the best way to grow your valuation is to grow your business. And it's to have a monthly process and a quarterly process and an annual process where you do some goal setting and you reverse engineer from where you want to sell to identify some strategies that might lie outside of the direct marching path. But then from the other side that there's four segments in your business that have constraints. I said it, I'm going to say it again. Lead gen, sales, capacity, LTV. If you have a simple process that on a monthly, quarterly, and annual basis, you can continually identify what your biggest constraints are. And just to do a quick sidebar in fulfillment operations, right? In a warehouse and manufacturing, your big your bottleneck is the slowest point of your operation. An operation or a manufacturing process or a factory process can only go as fast as your slowest point. In business, it's the same exact concept, but because it's not it's not an assembly line where you could easily see this is where our slowest point is, it's a little bit harder to identify where your constraint is. If you have a process to exclusively just identify what the constraint is, whether it's in leads, sales, capacity, or LTB, and you have a process where every month you create a top one, two, or three things that you're going to resolve and then re-measure every single month, you will be fine. And you do that in conjunction with still hiring someone or taking the time to know where the market's going so you're not blown out of the water when AI comes. If you do those two things, you'll always stay in business, right? And that's the process of... you raise a theory of constraints, but in lean operations, it's called continuous improvement, right? Having the the growth mindset that things will, you need to always be working on making things better. And that and that's the game. As long as you have that philosophy at your heart and it's the core of your business, I think you'll be fine.
1: Awesome. Perfect. Where can people go to find more about uh, you and about 8F? Yes. So we got a few places. So I also
0: have a fun podcast, go to How to Scale an Agency. That's where I'm at. And if you heard this and you're like, shit, we need help with our operations, eightfigureagency.co forward slash call. And if you're someone on social, Twitter and YouTube are, are my favorite places that I hang out on. Jordan underscore Ross underscore 8F is my Twitter. That's my best platform. I'm posting seven times a day there, like throughout, like every three to two three three two to four hours. And YouTube is Jordan Ross 8F. So Raj, thanks for you for so much for having me on and just grateful I got to be here.
1: Awesome. Great having you, Jordan. Talk soon.
0: What is good, Agency Owners? Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you were looking for support growing your agency and are not sure the best way to do that, go to eightfigureagency.co forward slash call where you will book a call with us and we will start our process to help you figure out what is the best way to grow your business. We're going to review your systems, add value, and help you understand a new model and system that you can start to build that is going to easily enable massive growth this year. Once again, that is 8figureagency.co forward slash call, where we will help you scale your agency and add $10,000 in MRR per month. Cheers.